Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to be joined by an artist whose arresting visual style has made an impact on the modern horror landscape. As a filmmaker, she's dabbled in the world of Giallo with her short, Red Red, and delivered an aquatic nightmare in the ABCs of Death two-and-a-half segment, M is for Mermaid. A celebrated photographer and artist, her work has graced the covers of Fangoria and Delirium magazines. She also used her photographic art to flip the script on horror's objectifying gaze with the creation of the Year of Fear calendar project, which offered some beefcake with blood spilling. Recently, she and I collaborated on a short together, a feminist vampire piece called From Hell She Rises, and she just directed a segment of Death Sember, a forthcoming holiday horror anthology film. Please welcome to the show, filmmaker, photographer, creative genius, Amalia. Wow, thank you. Hi, glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, so before we like get into all of that, because <laughs> that's quite, quite a lot, quite a career, uh, why don't we just start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest? It is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think horror appeals to a mass audience? But uh, why horror? Why horror? Wow. Um, for me, I, I got into horror really young. I was like four. And my grandma let me rent any movie I wanted at the video store when I went to visit. And I rented Monster Squad. And that was the start of it for me. And I rented that every time I went to visit until the, like, the owner of this video store finally gave me the VHS. And like when I think of like the root of why it matters to me and why horror matters, it's like it's such an escape. It's such like an interesting world that can go any direction as far as the genre goes. And um, I'm like, will never want to do anything but horror, I think. Oh, so you were just drawn to it early on. Absolutely, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your origins then in the genre. The idea that your grandma's letting you rent whatever you want. You're obsessed with these movies. So obviously you're a fan from from right away. Uh, but at what point did you, while watching these, decide, oh, I want to do more than watch these. I want to live in this world. I want to m- make art based around horror or make horror films. Was there like a transitional moment? Um. Yeah, actually, when I was like... I don't know, maybe 13 or 14, I was like, definitely like kind of a nerdy kid. And I was always going to like the video store and renting anything with a cool cover. And I rented uh, Slumber Party Massacre. And seeing Amy Jones pop up on the screen as a director, that was the first time I was like, wow, women can do this. And I instantly was like, I want to do that. And so from that age on, like I knew I wanted to make horror movies. I love that. And I, you know, the thing about Slumber Party Massacre is it is a kind of it's a way more feminist film than I think people realize. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like even down to like his weapon and how they use it and like this big over, you know, over dramatic, like long drills, very phallic symbol. Right. And that the girls have to fight back against that. I, I, I like that that's sort of the initiation point for you. The idea that like I not only was brought into this world by a, a female horror filmmaker, but someone who's making a statement at, especially about men using their dicks as a weapon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I talked about in the intro your work in the world of photography and your work as a filmmaker. Uh, what came first and what was the path? Uh, it was kind of simultaneous. Um, I definitely spent a lot of summers. I grew up in Maine. There's not a lot to do there. Um, but Stephen King country. Uh, yes, I, I'm from Bangor, Maine. Well, Bucksport, right next to it. Um, so I definitely spent a lot of time with like my family is like, you know, like big, like one of those like shoulder camcorders, like 
making movies in the backyard with my family and friends and like editing between two VCRs and, you know, taking, you know, black and white pictures in cemeteries. And like, <laughs> so it was kind of both. Like I, I really loved both growing up. So you were editing like on dual VHS. Yeah. That's kind of complex for a kid. Um, sort of like <laughs> my, my dad was really into, uh, to buying, uh, or to renting movies and like stealing them by putting them on, like recording them at the same time on VHSs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we had two VCRs and I was just kind of like, well, if he can do that with that, what if I put this tape in and like, you know, push like play record here and then stop and then go to a different part of it where I'd made another, you know, shot and put it together and. You know, it definitely is a, it doesn't look perfect, but even looking at them now, it's not the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely more advanced than I think a lot of kids in the backyard with a camcorder. So, uh, <laughs> so have you gone and watched those, those shorts that you, those films that you made as a kid? Uh, some of them. Yeah. Like uh, when we were making uh, my film Red Red in Maine, um, my mom pulled some out for my <laughs> crew to watch because she thought it'd be funny and. Did you think it was funny? It was a little embarrassing, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you have developed through your work a very unique style, especially in the world of photography. And uh, talk to me a little bit about that journey, because there is obviously, you know, your commitment to making movies and you're making movies as a kid. But you you really have, have made a name for yourself as a photographer. So what was that something that always professionally you you were looking at because of this or um <clears throat> yeah i don't know what at what point i decided to do more photography than film for a really long time i think a lot of it was just like being overwhelmed with having to work with more people versus just doing it myself mm -hmm. and you know and still even though i've been a celebrity photographer for like 15 years i still my crew is like three people i do everything myself i I make a lot of the costumes that people wear. I build the sets. I do all of that stuff. Um, and I think I like the fact that I can do it all alone versus, you know, collaborative. And maybe that's my ego. I don't know. Right. But you do get a measure of control over it. That Absolutely. You don't always have when you're making movies because even though, uh, and I think this is something that sometimes the casual film go goer doesn't completely understand, is that you may go to a movie and that title card says a... Quentin Tarantino mm -hmm. film, a such and such film. It's really a, a, a film that belongs to a lot of people because a lot of cogs go into the making of that. And sometimes that can be overwhelming and frankly stressful for a filmmaker. It, yeah, for sure. As an artist, um, you know, giving any sort of like, I wouldn't say control as much as trust in another person to execute your vision is always going to be very stressful and you know it's cultivating like the, a crew that you know each department knows exactly what you want and they know what they're doing and they're going to bring something to the table that that uh is you know worthwhile to your project and it's it's definitely stressful and i don't think many people realize that no it's very true and it is it is uh a perfect storm. Well, it's not always perfect. It's always a storm. <laughs> uh, so, yes, you referenced your work as a celebrity photographer. And, uh, you know, at the top of the show, I uh, had mentioned that your work has appeared on the cover of many magazines. You photographed people like David Cronenberg and Dario Argento and uh, Barbara Crampton and so many icons of the genre, which must be like so awesome for you as a horror fan. 
But before I even ask you about that, tell me about that first picture. Of course, you're always taking pictures, but that first picture that you sold somewhere that you realized, oh, I think I can do this. Was that like, was there like a moment or? Uh, Yeah, uh, it wasn't selling it necessarily, but um, I was... I was a senior in high school, and as I said, Maine is so boring. Like, it's beautiful. There's lots of things to look at, but there's nothing for kids to do. And I had borrowed my grandpa's, like, Pentax K1000 camera and got a roll of black and white film. And uh, my friend Kate and I went to, like, a Salvation Army and bought, like, a wedding dress and spray-painted it black. And we went to this cemetery that um, – it's actually the one that's used in Pet Cemetery for the scene with uh, Stephen King – doing like as he's like a minister or something oh the mary lambert pet cemetery yes yes oh cool and i it's a it's the most beautiful cemetery i've ever seen in my life and we went there and i took pictures of her that were like super gothy and whatever and i remember getting that roll of film back and being like all right this this is something that i i think i might be okay at (laughs) i love that uh especially because it it stayed true to your roots there's something spooky about it it's a cemetery it's a black (laughs) wedding dress you didn't start like photographing apples in a dish or something (laughs) not for you huh uh so you have photographed so many icons of genre um What's that like working on set with your heroes? Because in a way, in those moments, you're directing them. You get to curate the image. Like when you have someone like Dario Argento and you get to light him and take a photograph. How's that feel as a horror fan? Um, It's, it's oh gosh, it's every time it's different, but it's definitely I get nervous. Like, you know, I've shot, you know, plenty of celebrities outside of horror and that's that's my job and that's what I do. And. I feel confident in it, but like, you know, waiting for David Cronenberg and they're like, he's coming in 15 minutes. And I start just being like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can direct my favorite director. Right. Um, It's definitely that. It's so exciting. And those are the jobs that I fight for that. I'm like, I I don't care if I get paid. I want to do this. This means so much to me. Who is someone that you haven't photographed yet that you want to? Uh, John Carpenter. So, you know, if, if he's listening or you know him, tell him what's up for me. <laughs> uh, we sure hope John Carpenter is listening to Dead for Filth. I hear he's real into gay horror. <laughs> I'm going to get a letter tomorrow. <laughs> no, that would be cool. I think that uh, it's just so awesome looking back at uh, some of the work that you've done and just even in the years that I've known you, like the Cronenberg series of photos that you took, seeing the Argento uh, pictures. I love the photos that you uh, took of Barbara Crampton. Well, thank you. Uh, and I, I do tend to obsess like you over those people. So I forget that you take <laughs> photos uh, out in the world of celebrity in general. Any particular uh, moments on, on shoots that are little tidbits or tales that you have? Anything of interest? Um, I think something that was really funny, actually, when I was shooting Dario, uh, it was at Beyond Fest. And of course, those guys are amazing and professional and like, they take care of, you know, the celebrities they have in their house. And, the, you know, they were totally babying him and, like, being like, oh, watch the steps, watch this, watch that be, like, you know, trying to, like, hold him like he's, like, this, like, fragile little man. And he just sort of, like, he sees me and he sees the set and he just kind of, like, waves them off and goes and he, like, sits down and he's like, I'm ready. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was so, it was so great. <laughs> One thing I really appreciate about your style, especially when you're photographing in the world of horror, is it would be real easy to do portraiture of someone that's just a portrait. 
you get like you know some of these these Vanity Fair cover photos where they they look fashionable and like Hollywood icons, but it's a picture. And I'm like I'm no no disrespect to that style, but you curate a world within the photo that you take, and you use you evoke things like with Dario Argento, he's very known for that giallo style. There's colors, and you put that into that photograph with him. And I you know your work with Cronenberg, you utilized imagery that's Cronenbergian. Uh, and you do that in your work, whether it's with celebrities or not. You're, you seem to be very um, focused on world curation. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And um, I mean, at least I try to. It's funny that you say that because uh, Annie Leibovitz was one of my favorite photographers that really inspired me, you know, in school and growing up. And, you know, she's like the head photographer for Vanity Fair. Right. But a lot of times, like, she created worlds and, like, these amazing sets and, like, these, like, moments in time that were just, like, stopped in these, you know, fantasy places with these celebrities. And I think that was, like, between her and David LaChapelle, those are, like, my biggest influences on, like, how I create. I would be interested to know if David LaChapelle is a fan of horror because his images are always so phantasmagorical. There's something otherworldly about them. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, th- I, I have several David LaChapelle coffee table books. It doesn't hurt that everybody looks really sexy in all yeah. these photographs, too. And speaking of really sexy in photographs, we are talking about your photography work. And uh, I, I wanted to bring this up, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on Dead for Filth, uh, among all of your your uh, work and things to talk about, is, is the Year of Fear calendar project that you've been doing. Uh, I really love this project and I really think that your mission statement for this project was very important and obviously we like cute boys here too so uh, <laughs> but this the, the idea that you were doing these calendars and uh, pin-up photography of classic movie monsters uh, but in a a new sort of way and I will let you describe that because I think that this is super cool and it has gotten a lot of attention for just cause. Yeah, um, I started it because I, at the time I was working for Fangoria, well, the old regime, which are, you know, both are great, by the way. I'm not trying to talk down on it. But I was shooting for Gore Zone, the, like, sister magazine of it. And I was shooting a lot of, like, horror actresses, like, very sexy. And I was kind of getting frustrated. I was just like, I'm so sick of exploiting women. <laughs> I don't want to do this with my career. Right. And I'm like, I want to I want to exploit men. <laughs> and, you know, I want to. I want to make something that's like a product that's not for necessarily for like straight men in horror. I want to make something for like women and, and you know, gay men. And my friend that I was like in a car with was just like, you should do it. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe. And he's like, no, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> so that's that's really how it came to be. And um, it's been one of the funnest things I think I've done in my career. And how many years now have you been doing it? Uh, the, we just finished year three. It's wild. And it's if if you out there in listener land have not yet seen these calendars, although they have been considerably reported upon in, in the genre space, uh, what happens is Emma does these great portraits of, of beautiful guys <laughs> in these, uh, like, but as Jason or as Freddy or Frankenstein. And uh, again, your world curation is on view. It's not just about having a sexy guy. It's about setting a horror scene. But I always loved this mission statement of yours about um, subverting the expectations of the audience Mm -hmm. and uh, reversing that gaze. Because there is, 
this thread, and especially there was for a long time in publications and horror fandom, of objectifying the female. Oh, absolutely. And and it also, like, you know, brings a stereotype of women don't like horror movies. And that's such a not true uh, thing. I know plenty of women. I know just as many women that love horror as men. And, you know, it was always difficult getting to do projects for women or for someone that's not a straight man. Right. And so I think that was definitely one of the things I set out to prove with doing that project is, you know, there's more audiences than just, you know, straight white teenage boys. Right. And I think that's the thing that's interesting. And it was the mission statement of this show is that horror has always been something that attracts otherness and the outsider and it should be a community for everyone Mm -hmm. and i think by and large when you are in the horror community it feels like that until you get to the gatekeepers of the horror community who seem to think of it as a place for a specific kind of audience and that's why i think work like yours is so important to show like no people want to see this represented in different ways and you mentioned uh, the resistance to the idea that there are women who like horror films and who love this genre uh, and who work and create in this genre. And I know that you've, you've encountered uh, a lot of that resistance yourself. And would you care to speak on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely and it's one of those things like sometimes I have to decide whether do I do I want to speak my mind on this or do I want to, you know, nod and smile and get work (laughs) right um but yeah i definitely think there's this this unfair thing of just making projects that people have already seen before they cater to a specific audience for stories that only matter like that only tell their type of story or you know um or just cater to these stereotypes and horror that are already there like i don't need to see another movie with a white knight i don't need to see another girl you know running through the woods dying for no reason like I'm sick of that, and I'm. I definitely try to push those boundaries anytime I can, and I know you do too. And and there is a resistance there, but I mean, I, I definitely have faith and hope that things are changing within the genre. Yeah, and I think that the one cool thing that is happening, uh, well, not the one cool thing, but a cool thing that is happening with the advent of the digital era is there are more places now mm-hmm. to create things for, and so now if people don't. In at the up top of the the studios are like no one wants to see a horror movie about women or about gay people or about you know people of color. Well, we can still go out and make it, and mm-hmm. we'll find our audience. And the audience is there. If anything that is being proven now, seeing something like Captain Marvel open mm-hmm. to like millions of dollars, or Jordan Peele having the biggest opening weekend for an original horror movie ever. Oh, that just made, gave me goosebumps. <laughs> and yet, and yet. The crazy thing that I know you and I have both experienced in rooms trying to pitch stuff is we can point to these numbers and they still are just like, oh, no, no, no. But no one wants to see that. I'm like, they fucking do. (laughs) Like, where's your $70 million horror movie, sir? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also the frustrating part of, you know, a project that you and I have been working on together for a long time. That's like, you know, a female fronted cast and like a really strong female story. And, like, we keep hearing no, but then I see a lot of male filmmakers out there trying to do the same thing that we are, but we did it better, obviously. Yes, of course. And, like, they're getting funding and they're getting these movies made and they're getting, you know, praise for being so woke. And I'm just like, really? 
Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said about allyship, and of course I'm here for it. But it is frustrating when <laughs> you are, like, a queer person in the world trying to make queer art, or, you know, you are a, a woman trying to make movies that are about women, and some guy, like, in a room who's like, I have an idea to be bold and strange. I'm like, dude, we've... Not, not only are we trying to tell these stories, we actually live these stories. Could you give us the opportunity to tell them? Yes, agreed. Uh, so let's talk about, you know, you mentioned uh, that project, uh, and let's talk about your film work. The, uh, uh, and you referenced Red Red, uh, which is a giallo kind of inspired piece that you did. Um, talk to me about, you, you're making movies as a little kid on the camcorder, still obsessed with this dual tape editing. <laughs> um, and then uh, at what point do you move from Maine to L.A. and, and start a career in film? Um, I well, I went to Boston first, and I went to school there, and then I went to grad school out here in uh, Santa Barbara. And by the time I finished school, I already was working for like you know magazines as a photographer, and so it took me a couple of years just working and you know getting into a career. And then I was like, well, I really, really want to make movies. Like, I just where my heart is, and so I started doing like short films on my own. Like, I bought like I don't know, it was like. A, a Canon 5D when it came out because it could do film and that was exciting and would start making little movies again on my own and you know kind of grew from there um and I, st- I mean I still don't like have a feature under my belt but I definitely have done a lot of like anthology films and things like that and just keep chipping away at it and uh you did just direct this segment for December which is coming out I assume or by the holiday yeah. of 2019. Uh can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, um my segment is uh it's another giallo piece and it actually stars um Barbara McNulty who was in Suspiria so that was super cool to work with her and she's incredible. Um and we did that and we shot like in like this like spooky old Victorian and um, it's written by uh, Mark Gottlieb. I'm not sure if you know him or not. Uh, he's done lots of uh, asylum films, but he loves Giallo. Like just total super fan of the genre. And he's like, I got this. And awesome. He, yeah, he gave us this great, great script about like this this family that just totally hates each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's a kind of like a whodunit sort of thing. And uh, Peter Stickles is actually in it as well. Who was a previous guest here on Dead for Phils. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Uh, and what's the name of the segment? Um, Five Deaths in Blood Red. Oh, that's definitely a Giallo oh, title. Yeah. <laughs> so you seem to like to return to the Giallo style a lot. Um, is there a specific reason that you're drawn towards that uh, that specific subgenre of horror? I mean, I'd love to just sit here and tell you it's because I'm Italian, but <laughs> I don't know if that's a good enough reason. Um, I think a lot of it is... I don't, some people cringe when I say this, but I'm totally like a style over substance person in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like I love making like moving images that are art. And um, I think it definitely is an outlet for that. Instead of just telling a straight story with like straight cinematography, it it gives me an opportunity to just kind of be weird. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about the idea of style over substance. Do you have films that you like return to that you can look at and say, this is so beautifully curated in an artistic way, I could give a shit that it doesn't make any sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, of course, a lot of a lot of those Italian movies, like 
you know, pretty much anything Argento ever directed, like uh, Deep Red or um, Opera, which has like four endings. It's true. <laughs> um, I mean, I love the movie Stoker, which which has way more story, but it's still one of those like it's just every shot looks like a painting, and I love that. And I. I would assume then that's tied in though to your kind of photographer mind. You're, I, when I think you so. are making films, did you have to kind of like negotiate between the two sometimes, or or is that something that you don't even think about? Um, no, I do, and I definitely like. I actually try to keep my editor on set as much as possible to be like, Emma, that's a beautiful shot, but you actually need like A, B, and C to get to the next to make the scene work together. And um, that's that's helpful for me because, you know, I definitely am thinking of big, broad strokes and pretty images versus like continuity. (laughs) And I have to ask from like a construction standpoint. And again, we said earlier that a film is made up of a, a whole collaborative group of artists. But you who are so powerful with a camera and you curate these worlds and um, you like you said, you like working by yourself when you take photos. Mm-hmm. We often and I've worked with you uh, when you're on set, even though you're still curating the world in front of us, you work with a DP. Is that because you don't feel like you can focus on the directing and the shooting at the same time? Or is that just is it a different mindset for you? Is that how you separate the photographer from the um no and it's it's funny I, I actually did a lot of uh, I mean I had a cinematographer on this December project but I went back and I did a lot of scenes by myself with like just me and the actress because they they I felt that it could be more me um and that's definitely something that I always struggle with and I, you've been on set with me and you've seen me bicker about lenses and yeah. um and it's definitely something I'm thinking about for the future of doing it all myself it's just it's one of those things where I'm like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be done. So this is what I should be doing. But I, and that, you know, I think the more films I make and the more confident I get, the more I'm like, well, maybe I should just do it all myself. Well, I think there's something to be said about uh, doing things your way. And honestly, like looking at the work that you do, anytime you strike out and do it your way, it seems <laughs> to do well. Oh, thank you. And also we live in a, a space where horror is the genre where we get to kind of test the water mm-hmm. and buck the system. It's sort of, I've, I've been on sets where people are like, no, you have to do it like this. And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Did it work out? I don't know. That's for other people to say. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, yeah, you and I, speaking of our collaboration, Emma and I have worked together a few times uh, before. Uh, and we did uh, Mystery Phone, which is all about uh, girls playing a, uh, a a board game that brings <laughs> back a, a dead man from from their their past. Uh, and then we recently uh, did uh, From Hell She Rises, which is a lesbian feminist vampire film set in uh, Victorian-era London that you shot in its entirety in Sherman Oaks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We did that. We did, it took us two days to do, and I built, like, a Victorian castle bedroom in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing what you pulled off that you were able to, because when watching it, it doesn't feel like it's in California. Again, that just your eye for detail for these things. My favorite story, uh, and I don't know like how thrilled uh, the world might be about this. Uh, we did a screening of it uh, in Van Nuys, <laughs> and um, it is uh, it is a, a piece with a message. Your, your aunt, 
Emma's cracking up right now. Uh, and at the end, during a Q&A, this man point blank asked you if you hated men. <laughs> 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 because the movie is so hard on men. And uh, I remember thinking, well, I wrote it. And yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I think I ended up flipping him off. Yeah, it was amazing. That happened. <laughs> it was such a good night, though. I had so much fun. Um, and that was born out of both of our mutual love of Hammer films. Yes. Which, again, are movies that, like, offer a lot style-wise. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're beautiful. And, you know, I think we both love dramatic things. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> but uh, I do think that, again, horror is a space where style should be valued. If does that make sense? Yeah, or? absolutely, absolutely. But I know there's definitely people out there who who do not like those the more stylish films. No, it's true. Um, and you know, teach their own, I guess. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about uh, what you are working on next. Like, what's in the future? What's coming up for you beyond December? Do you do you have some plans? I do. I do. Um, uh, I don't know how much I can say about them, but I can say um, Mark Gottlieb and I are definitely collaborating on another another script um, to shop around. And it's very actually I think you'd like it because it's very trauma-esque. Mm, I love a trauma and movie. It's kind of it's like that sort of I'll, I'll, I'll describe it like this. It's the Warriors meet Street Trash, but oh. with an all female cast. <laughs> Uh, yes, I want to see that movie. <laughs> I am 100% here for that. And there is another Year of Fear calendar coming. Yes, I believe so. I mean, I, I hope so. Let's let's put it there. <laughs> it depends on on how many film projects and everything else I get this year. Now, you did. I do have to, to say, just so like, you know, someone on the internet, like later when they're looking all this up, they, they don't slide in and try and contradict. You did, uh, I think it was in year two of the Year of Fear calendar, did do an, uh, a calendar of, of women as well. But you took a different approach with that one as opposed to like the things that you were shooting for Gore Zone. Yes, yes. Um, basically, the money people behind Year of Fear were like, We'll give you money to make another men's one, but you have to make a women's one too. And it was it was definitely a battle. And we've done two of them now. And basically, I had rules. I was like, no victims, no like, you know, male to female cosplay. So no like, you know, girls dressed as Freddy right. looking, you know, like they walked out of like a, uh, what is it, spirit Halloween catalog. <laughs> and I would just would only do fully fleshed out like badass female characters that already exist. Right. Uh, and I I really uh, a bit of trivia is I'm actually in one of those calendars. Oh, yeah. But uh, you got to find me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I will say that Emma put me in uh, quite an outfit. <laughs> uh, and I'm still still mentally scarred from it. Well, you're still on my refrigerator. <laughs> uh, so what have you been watching lately that is inspiring you? Like what in the landscape of horror is getting you amped up? What do you like? Um, I recently watched uh, Lords of Chaos. 
I don't. I haven't seen that. Uh, it's I. I'm a big black metal fan, okay. and uh, it's what's his name, Jonas Ackerlund. Oh yeah, he used to direct like Madonna videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like I, I love those directors who kind of went from music videos to like you know feature films, mm-hmm. and so it's about like all of the crazy things that happened in Norway in like the 90s with the church burnings and the murders, and I think he did a great job with it, and um, I know how hard it was for him to make it, so I even like respect that even more i loved that i loved um uh bad times at the el royale uh haven't seen it yet but drew goddard who did cabin uh in the woods is like someone who i'm a huge fan of like any buffy alumni usually gets like a a big (laughs) thumbs up from me for sure for sure and i i think i mean i saw that at at a festival and he did a q a and he's like oh you know my budget and i'm like homie you have like marvel money <laughs> you had plenty of money to make this movie but it's so beautiful like every shot is so perfect and the cast is incredible um i'm trying to think of other things i've seen what about you well i have to ask since you mentioned bad times at el royale and you just worked with barbara magnolfi mm-hmm. uh it, dakota johnson is in bad times at el royale and she was in the recent uh new version of suspiria have you seen that and i'm curious what your take is i mean we're a safe space here you can say whatever <laughs> but it uh it definitely is a movie that evokes a style over substance motif as well but in a very different way than i think argento does yeah, I uh, I was so excited for it. I loved the trailer. I was I was just I went in like I think I was like kind of like jumping up and down, waiting to go into the theater to see it, and I ended up just hating it. Oh no! <laughs> I just kind of was like, oh, what is this dude doing? Like, I I thought that there was a little too much. Um, uh, what is her name? Uh, Tilda Swinton. Well, she does play four characters uh, yeah. in the film. That was. To me, it's a drag movie because Tilda's like straight up in drag uh, like three times, um, if not four. Just living like I think it's interesting. It's art house, but it's also kind of like I can't not think of uh, in the 90s when Eddie Murphy would make movies and play everybody. (laughs) There's just something about it. Like the difference is they're doing like Eddie Murphy jokes and she's very like, you know, stoically eating a chicken wing. Yes. I, I just it took me out every single time and I, I just I didn't love it I wanted to and I think I just ended up just violently hating it I did love Mandy which I saw the same week that's another movie that again I think fits into this motif mm-hmm. of style and substance I think that's the theme of the episode the idea that you can curate atmosphere uh, and Mandy definitely did what I think is interesting is that Mandy has already started playing as like midnight movie around places like the new art keeps screening it here in LA like at midnight I didn't even know that in the era of digital we could have uh, uh, new midnight classics but I don't know I'm into it well it's interesting because I actually read this article like around the release where they had no idea that this movie was going to hit the way it did so obviously theaters didn't order it and there was no distribution like you know no wide release and so they were just kind of like, well, do we do a second release in like November versus I think it came out in like September right. or so I think that's why all these midnight movies are happening because there's still an audience that wants to see this crazy movie on the big screen because that's really the way you need to see it. And um, I think it's it's a lucrative thing for theaters to do right now. Do you think to it's it doesn't seem to just be like horror fans of our generation there seem to be people that are still very hungry to go to the movies and this is very abstract so i mean i I, i'm just throwing it out there 
Do you think part of that is still kind of a resistance to the fact that we're so stuck to our devices, we want to go out and just actually have an experience that's away from all of you know, the chaos of, of streaming. I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes I think so, but we also live in this crazy age of like movie pass and now what is it? AMC stubs. And it's like, it's never been easier or cheaper to go to the movies. Right. And it's like, it's assigned seating. You don't have to get there an hour before. Like there's fast passes for the concession stand. Like the, you know, it's so streamlined to go to the movies now. It's easy. It's an easy date night on a Thursday. Yeah. Uh, I think the fast pass to concessions is just like maybe the most American thing <laughs> of all. Like the idea that it's like, I am here and I need this popcorn or these snow caps now. <laughs> but it's not actually popcorn and snow caps anymore. Like, I, I was wish a- it was snow caps. I wish. You know, what is it about snow caps that it's like, the, it's a movie theater snack only. Like, you never see them in the world. When was the last time you were just somewhere and there was like, here's some snow caps? I only ever see them at movie theaters. Oh, let me tell you my my drama with snow caps. They, I wish they had them at the movie theater. It's like my favorite candy. They don't, none of them carry it anymore. Uh, the 99 cent store does. So I buy that shit in bulk. Like, <laughs> I keep it in the freezer and like, I will take it to the movies with me. <laughs> okay, you know how I know that you grew up in an Italian household? Two, two things. One, you like snow caps, which for uh, non-Italian people, Italians know them as non-pareils yeah. and they're definitely a Christmas candy. Uh, they had to call them something else when marketed just because no one knows what that means. Yeah. And two... Italian people always put their chocolate in the freezer. It is like a straight up thing. I guarantee if my mom's listening to this now, she's got like a Snickers bar in there or something. Because I don't know what that is. Like, But I don't even like to eat chocolate that's not frozen. <laughs> so weird. Uh, I love it. So that's maybe, that's the next giallo. We right. got, we got to do something about the... <laughs> snow caps. Yeah, snow caps and freezer chocolate. <laughs> Freezer chocolate sounds like a porn title. Uh, I'm into it either way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I think that's really interesting is the idea that um, it's never been easier to go to the movies. And maybe it's because there's just so much available now. We still we need to get out of our houses. Mm -hmm. I get overwhelmed about all this stuff that like is out in the world to watch. I get excited. I get so like when I start like. You know, the whole, what is what is the movement called now? Like, film Twitter? Oh, yeah. When everyone's like, oh, my God, such and such just dropped on Netflix, Hulu, whatever, and it's the next big blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, sold, and, you know, we'll watch it, like, instantly. Yeah. So is there anything coming out soon that you're hyped to see? Like, are you real excited about something? Oh, my God, yes. Godzilla. Yeah? I'm, I'm there. Are I'm, you a big monster person? I am a kaiju fan. It's interesting because when I think of Giallo, which is kind of the world you live in, and kaiju, they couldn't be more diametrically opposite because Giallo has this very stylized atmosphere. Things are very, like, intricate and small. And kaiju's like big stomp, stomp, smash cardboard cities, <laughs> which is fun. But, like, it's just so interesting that that's something that you are a big fan of. Yeah, I, I, it started when I was super, super young, and I mean, I love that stuff. Like Godzilla '95, like it's one of my favorite movies. Wait, the Matthew Broderick one? No, no, no! Oh, oh my okay. god, it's Godzilla versus Destroy All. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> Broderick's like two thousand or something, right? Uh, we don't count that one. Okay, fair. We don't call him Godzilla; we call it Zilla. Really? Yes, because it's like you know, 
Like, she doesn't even go here. (laughs) (laughs) Stop trying to make American Godzilla happen. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, yeah, I had no idea that you were a kaiju fan. Uh, Is there, outside of Godzilla, do you have favorites? Like, what what should I be keying into? What's my my kaiju crash course here? Um, I love War of the Gargantuans, which actually has, like, a really amazing opening scene with, like, tentacles and the ship coming through and it's pretty well done it's pretty impressive but i don't i don't know why i love those movies it's so primal like i remember seeing um pacific rim in theaters and just like standing up like a little kid in the theater. <laughs> so so excited uh you know what's interesting is i have never like fully given myself to the kaiju phenomenon <laughs> like i get it like i've i've uh done videos about the the history of them and their movies that i like as well but uh the one kaiju that I'm like an unapologetic stand for is Mothra. Okay. And I think that the realization is that Mothra is kind of a stunt queen, which is what I like. Uh, there's something like just super <laughs> draggy about her. She like has backup girls that like <laughs> sing her entrance. She definitely, she starts like as a larvae and then like does like the reveal. Oh my God. Like I've thought about this. I'm like, why do I love Mothra? I'm like, because she fucking can turn a look. <laughs> and she's got she's got like a whole act. She's so extra. She is. <laughs> and it's sort of like Mothra's my girl. Like I love the idea like Godzilla just comes in and he's like just this train wreck of like, you know, bad breath and she's like, "Mm-mm." <laughs> First off, you're going to listen to my theme song and then I'm a, I'm going to do this. Have you ever seen I think it's like Thai Spider-Man? Oh, Japanese Spider-Man. Is it Japanese? Yeah, for the one where he's got the giant robot friend. Yeah. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. Me too. I got like all the seasons off eBay. Somebody recorded them onto discs and I just binged it. I love it. Um, I did an episode of History of Fright all about the uh, the history of kaiju. And I like went out of my way to find a way to talk about Japanese Spider-Man. Because to me, and this is much respect to the dear departed Stanley, uh, Japanese Spider-Man is my favorite version of the character. Yes. Because for listeners who don't know, it is Spider-Man maybe in name only. Like he wears the costume. But instead of Peter Parker, it's this guy who is a stunt motorcycle racer I guess a real person job and uh, (laughs) he gets cosmic powers that make him Spider-Man that also he's got like a giant robot friend because that's what happened because Japan yes (laughs) and uh, and then uh, he his enemy is uh, this this creature named Professor Monster who I think is maybe the coolest Spider-Man villain. I think Into the Spider-Verse dropped the ball in one way, and I, th- I loved that. I, th- I thought it was a great movie that um, we didn't get at least uh, a moment where there was giant Power Ranger Spider-Man I know, crossover. it really needs to happen. Yeah. And I love that at the end of every episode, he, like, fights a kaiju, and, you know, he, like, attacks three times, and he'll be like, Sword of Valor! And then, like, that's the thing that gets them every time. <laughs> Yeah, that's always been my thing, like with Power Rangers or Sailor Moon or any of uh, any of those that follow the similar format where they transform and then they've got the power attack is if your giant robot swinging one sword swing is the thing that defeats the monster ultimately every episode. Don't you want to start there? (laughs) Like, I feel like they always like complicate it. They're like, maybe we'll try and hit him like with this bike or something. I'm like, no, just just. Skip to skip to the sword. (laughs) Because you've got like not a lot of hours in the day. Right. Yeah. You want to spend it fighting like a turtle with a stoplight in its back? It's just like (laughs) 
actual Power Ranger villain, personal favorite Power Ranger <laughs> villain, because I wanted to have been in the writer's room that day. They're just like, what do we got? Uh, what if it's a turtle? We could shove a stoplight in its back. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Let's go to lunch. <laughs> uh, goodness. Um, so because you as a uh, person in the world, you, your work is uh, a person in horror who has tried to curate work that subverts what uh, audiences expect and, uh, you know, gives a, a different point of view than what we are normally given, i.e. the idea that for so long, if you looked at the horror movie magazines, the photography was always about objectifying women in a way that seemed to suggest that only straight white men of a certain age were interested in horror. And then you come along and you were like, no, and I'm going to make art that reflects this. Uh, that's a very significant and powerful thing in any genre for people who are growing up engaging in this to see because it shows you two are part of this. You can do this. You are in this community if you want to be. And as I know, you are sensitive to those issues and those things. And what the drive of this show is about is the idea of letting everyone know that they're welcome. I'm curious, and it's a serious question to kind of close things out. If you could impart a message to young horror fans or, you know, burgeoning creatives about their journey, what would it be? What do you want people to take away from the work that you do? I think the biggest thing to take away is just to do you, to not succumb to industry standards or what other people expect of you. If, you know, you want to make gay horror movies make gay horror movies if you want to make furry ones make furry ones like do whatever speaks to you and don't compromise with that i couldn't agree more and i really want to see a furry horror movie <laughs> yeah when you said it like a whole bunch of images just yeah, like flew through my mind <laughs> i'm keeping all this in oh good <laughs> uh emma where can people find you um i am on the social media at on everything pretty much as at Miss Amalia and I'm at amaliaphoto.com Please keep your eyes out for Emma and all of her work like I said she's got a segment of December coming out here soon at the end of the year. Uh, a lot of her films are available in some capacity streaming on the interwebs. Please look for Red Red and uh, for Emma's for Mermaid from Hell She Rises I know is out there as is Mystery Phone. Uh, she's always up to something. Her work appears regularly in publications. So if you see one of your favorite horror icons looking more beautiful than they ever have before, <laughs> know that it was probably her. Thank you so much Thank for coming today. Thank you for having me. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelletione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>